Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and welcome to the Influence Continuum. And I'm absolutely honored to have as my guest today, Dr. Robert J. Lifton, MD, a psychiatrist, uh, amazing, uh, amazingly prolific thinker and writer, and uh, a righteous man who stands up for uh, human rights and against uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, we, we can cover a bunch of your life work, Dr. Lifton. But before we jump in, I just want to tell the audience who may not know my work too much or yours, that it was 1976 when I called you. You were at Yale at the time, and I think your secretary got you on the phone with me. And I and you said, yes, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, your book saved my life. And your first words, I'll never forget, it was, which book? <laughs> and in fact, it was Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, your, your seminal work on Chinese communist brainwashing of the 50s, which was used in my deprogramming uh, that helped me have a foothold in understanding your eight criteria, I think you later call them your the eight sins of of thought reform and mind control. Eight, de eight deadly sins. Eight right. deadly sins. Mm -hmm. Thank you for right. correcting me. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've done a book on uh, the Om Shinrikyo cult, on apocalyptic cults. You've you've done um, books on not a book on the Nazi doctors, the effects of the nuclear bomb of the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, just to name a few things. But the book that I want to mention most is your the recent book that you have on this topic of my close to my heart, Losing Reality on Cults, Cultism, and the Mindset of Political and Religious Zealotry. And um, Dr. Lifton, you're still sharp. You're in your mid-90s, and I so appreciate you taking this time to speak with us today. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased to be talking to you, Steve, uh, and uh, so much has occurred in which we've shared, and I'm happy to continue to do that. Yes, thank you so much. So we're doing this interview. It's uh, the end of 2021, uh, and uh, there's still a base of uh, people who still believe that the election was stolen, that Trump actually won, and all these politicians who are spreading disinformation. So much more has come out now about January 6th. So I just want to toss you a softball, if I may. Like, what what are your thoughts on what's happening? And of course, I'm most interested in your your wisdom and your advice for what what people can say or do about this. Well, uh, there is a lot to say about what's happening. And first, I'll say the obvious, but uh, insufficiently responded to, namely that uh, politically, our democracy is in deep danger because there is the effective uh, expression of the big lie that's always uh, that always precedes the end of democracy and there's a very grave danger that could happen to us one way I have of looking at it is 
to look at the combination of political and psychological uh, influences. And if you approach it from that perspective, one can say that our society is now suffused with death anxiety, with death anxiety, and it comes, of course, from the pandemic, uh, which is still all too much with us. And there are other things that contribute, like nuclear and climate threat. Uh, And in relation to this overall sense of catastrophe in our society, there is a political rejection on the part of Trumpists and right-wingers of the full truth of the uh, catastrophe, and therefore, in a strange way, a rejection of surviving the catastrophe. After all, our task now is surviving the catastrophe, and uh, that's where survivors come in. And just to say one more thing about this, your own description of your personal experience with the Unification Church was an example of your transforming yourself from a victim into a survivor. Yep. A victim means harm and immobilization. A survivor means life and some capacity for renewal. Yeah, and I need to interrupt you and just say for the audience, when we first met in person, because I said I want to explain how the Moonies recruited and how they indoctrinated, we met and I told you about the free lectures and the front groups and the three-day workshop, the seven-day workshop, the 21-day workshop. After you listened to me, you looked me in the eye and you said the words. I'm getting emotional just remembering it. You said, you know, I've just studied this secondhand, but you've lived it and yeah, you did it to other people. So you need to study psychology and explain it to people like me. And there I was, 22 years old, with a cast from my toes to my, to my hips because of my near-fatal van crash due to sleep exhaustion. I was ashamed, embarrassed, a college dropout, an ex-Mooney, and this Yale psychiatrist. You did the classic reframe. Steve, you, you know, make lemonade. That's <laughs> how it, it And yeah. I have to thank you. Because, and everyone who's been helped by my work needs to thank you for that moment of mentorship. Well, thanks, Steve. And what I can say is, I admit that was excellent advice that I gave you. (laughs) And uh, all the more so because you carried it out. Yeah. And you've done a few things with it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, And now we have more former members coming forward. Many are becoming mental health professionals, too. And for me, that's the big hope, is mobilizing people who've already experienced the loss of their personal freedom due to thought reform or mind control, and, and let them be whistleblowers. Let us you know, join together and say human freedom and human rights are worth fighting for. Absolutely. And uh, I'm working on a new book with a tentative title of uh, Catastrophe and Survivors, or something on that order. 
and it's about the central, uh, uh, absolutely essential role of survivors for the renewal of society. Mm-hmm. And a very good example here uh, are the survivors of Hiroshima, whom I interviewed in my study of uh, those who had experienced the first atomic bomb uh, in that city. And when these survivors, first of all, described their own enormous death anxiety, but then their struggle to confront what had happened to them, to give it meaning and form, recognize it, and in that way, make that important transformation from victims to survivors. Mm -hmm. And once they began to do that, they could take part, not only in the rebuilding of their city, but in conveying knowledge, in conveying survivor wisdom. That's an important idea, survivor wisdom Mm -hmm. to others throughout the world about nuclear weapons and war in general, and they traveled all over the world and did that. Mm-hmm. And their message was both the sea of death they experienced and the danger of nuclear weapons on the one hand, and their remarkable survival and the importance of survivors for our overcoming catastrophe and uh, embracing some form of renewal. And when the UN recently has adopted uh, a worthy principle of uh, rendering illegal any making or possession of nuclear weapons at the center of that effort have been Hiroshima survivors. They have the uh, authenticity, the experience to be heard, and they have made themselves heard. So that's an example of the absolute... uh, Crucial, absolutely crucial part that survivors uh, have in the renewal of society. And that's our situation and much of our hope right now. Yes. Um, I, I guess I want to just broaden the, the term of survivors to, you know, I'm a survivor of cancer. I had Hodgkin's lymphoma, and thanks to science and medicine, I'm fine, knock on wood. Uh, Also, people who've been sexually assaulted but have gone on to be vociferous in calling out the wrongdoers. And a lot of people, um, you know, erroneously tend to blame the victim that, oh, if it happened to you, you must have wanted it or created it, that the universe... You know, some people believe in the nonsense of the law of positive attraction, that if you just believe it, it's magically going to happen. And, and uh, so, but I want to, I wanna, you know, dig a little deeper, a little bit to the past, but to the present, um, because your work was in the 70s and beginning, excuse me, with Chinese communist brainwash in the 50s and then published in 61, and I had my experience in the 70s, but the world has changed with the internet and with with social media and how addictive it is and how hypnotizing it is. And your themes still resonate and can be applied to online, 
but can you talk a little bit about, you know, the morphing of thought reform methodology and techniques, please? Well, one thing in response to what you just said, Mm -hmm. there can be a misunderstanding in saying that, well, if people start reacting too much to the death of a parent or their own experience of illness, Mm -hmm. including cancer, as you said, uh, then that represents some weakness in those people. And that's a misunderstanding because the expectable and uh, quite uh, ordinary response to extreme trauma is death anxiety. Mm -hmm. And no matter how strong a person one is, if the trauma is great enough, there is an impact of death anxiety. And we all have some survivors, really, we all have some experiences of survival from the moment of birth. And all of the experiences of separation uh, that we that we go through or loss over the course or threat over the course of life are survivor-like. So, of course, we bring those into the intense survivals that we may personally or collectively experience, but nobody is immune from uh, trauma, from death anxiety, from a struggle with survival. That's part of the human condition. And indeed, it is part of our capacity for adaptation, Mm -hmm. uh, which is our notable capacity that has made us until now so strong in an evolutionary way. Yeah, that's great. So um, you know that I've been following your work for 45 years, read all of your books, and I I guess I want to ask you to just share a little bit about your theory of symbolic immortality and how the nuclear bomb shifted that in relation to what you're just saying. Um, Yes, um, starts with the idea that we are, of course, the animal who knows that we die. And we spend much of our life dealing with that knowledge. Uh, We struggle for what I call larger human connectedness. And since uh, we are a cultural animal, that larger connectedness involves the continuation of culture. We can't live without the continuation of culture. So in that way, we have our means of what I come to speak of as symbolic immortality or larger human connectedness. And that is expressed by having children and grandchildren and the bio, the biological continuity, continuity becomes biosocial continuity with our ethnic groups. It also is continuation of our influence in the world, whether as teachers or as writers or or as working people who contribute to the life of others. We all need a sense that we're part of something larger than ourselves individually. Mm -hmm. If we weren't human beings, we wouldn't need that sense. But it's quintessentially human. And that's what I mean by symbolic immortality. 
and now with nuclear weapons, but also with climate threat and also with the pandemic, that larger human connectedness is threatened. It hasn't been destroyed, but it's been profoundly threatened. Can we believe in the continuity of our children and grandchildren in the face of these world-ending threats? Mm -hmm. uh, can we believe in the influence of our work or our creative uh, influence on the world? Uh, it's a little uncertain. Uh, so we often seek some sort of religious or spiritual continuity, uh, the idea of an immortal soul. But even if we're secular, we require that continuity, that larger human connectedness, and we struggle very hard to sustain it. And again, the role of survivors is crucial in that struggle because where all around them seems to be destroyed, and therefore human continuity is endangered, survivors emerge, and whether as a remnant or as some kind of group, they emerge in the forefront of that renewal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very important, and I'm so glad to capture your ideas on this. I want to push you a little bit more to connect the dots with your study of Nazi doctors who were committed to uh, helping people who did such horrible things, but then went home and, and were nice fathers and husbands, etc. and your concept of the protean man. And the last time we talked, you talked about the grounded protean man. Can right. you share a little bit about those, those, please? Well, first, the Nazi doctors, <clears throat> uh, of course, that was a profound experience for me to undertake that study because it was a reversal of healing and killing. Uh, after all, I mean, there's plenty of corruption among doctors, no less so than among other professions, but a certain amount of healing is their charge. That's what they are about. And all doctors have some of that commitment to healing. Uh, <clears throat> but that knowledge of uh, medical science in the hands of the Nazis was uh, turned on its head. And the idea was put forward that Jews and other undesirables, but particularly Jews, had to be removed or destroyed in order to cure a kind of illness of the Nordic race, which had been caused by these undesirable people and their influences. So I understood the Nazis to have been engaged in that direct reversal of healing and killing. Unfortunately, uh, even though one can't simply say that Trumpists are Nazis, they're not. They don't have the full ideology, but they do also reverse healing and killing in their falsehoods, particularly about the pandemic, where they say we can ignore it, don't need masks, even fight against masks, and uh, at their worst, uh, 
regard the vaccine as the enemy, which is actually a source of cure. It's a, another reversal of healing and killing. And in that sense, uh, that reversal, led by Trumpists and right-wingers, uh, has been a source of the death of probably hundreds of thousands of Americans uh, and of people throughout the world. So that's a beginning response uh, to your question about the Nazis. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is that the Nazis were very cult-like. Um, there was constantly uh, a description of the thousand-year Reich. It's a kind of biblical term, a messianic term. Yep. Uh, and there was the great leader uh, who was a savior in the form of Adolf Hitler. Uh, and uh, there was this interaction between the, um, the savior and his people. Uh, it's been written about by various people, notably by uh, the Mitchellishes, Alexander and Margareta Mitchellishes, two wonderful anti-nuclear, uh, I'm sorry, anti-Nazi psychoanalysts, both of whom have died, uh, but who in the early post-war years wrote about this, and they called their book The Inability to Mourn. And the reason why Germans had such a difficulty mourning or an inability to mourn was their difficulty in recognizing that the leader they loved, the savior they loved, was evil and murderous, and that they were complicit in that evil, in their support. It wasn't just a small group, it was the nation as a whole, mm -hmm. in their support of that leader. Uh, and that prevented them from undergoing what could be called a proper mourning process, which includes confronting what one has been through and recognizing what one has lost mm -hmm. and seeking to again return to a life-enhancing situation. So all that was present with the Nazis. And although the Nazis had some very uh, specific tendencies and were unique in many ways, trying to round up all the Jews in Europe and kill them, that was unique. Nonetheless, we have much to learn from Nazi behavior in terms of patterns that resemble behavior we're exposed to now. Yeah, I, I, I would be a little more direct and say we have Nazis in the U.S. and neo-Nazis, anti-Semites who are dedicated. Oh, well, we have that too, yeah. and they have been encouraged by Trumpists, uh, and Trumpists have pressed the button of Nazi or neo-Nazi or white supremacy violence uh, as means of threat and support. Yes. Uh, so there is an intellectual and psychological connection right. between Trumpist administration and Nazi behavior, yeah. even if one doesn't simply label the Trumpists to be Nazis. Correct. Yeah, I agree completely. I just want to add that, you know, in my self-reflection and my therapy, 
I came to formulate a dual identity model, the old Steve Hassan, who was a conservative Jew from Flushing, Queens, who played basketball and wrote poetry, and then Steve Hassan, the son of Moon and his wife, the true parents of the universe. And it, for me, it, coming out of it, it was more like a dissociative disorder where there was a, a different me that had been an executive well, control. That's, that's an important thing to say because that relates to what I came to call doubling. Exactly, uh, yeah. If you take its extreme form, I, I came to the idea in my study of Nazi doctors in which the day job of the Nazi doctors, six days a week, was to do selections and send uh, Jews to the gas chamber. Uh, but over weekends and R&R equivalents that the Nazis had going from Poland back to Germany to their families, they could be ordinary fathers and husbands. Now, that was a form of doubling uh, as if the same self could give birth to two dissociated selves. It really was part of the same self, yep. but it was a form of dissociation because it was effectively two separate selves. And when you describe yourself as uh, an ordinary youngster growing up with interest in sports and uh, uh, girls, fam family kid and everything else, <laughs> and then becoming a fanatical Mooney in some degree, uh, in total it's a degree. kind of doubling that occurs with cults, yeah. a cultist doubling that's not basically different, although not as extreme as the Nazis. Uh, again, you can look at the Nazis for uh, some sort of insight in our own lives. Yeah, thank you. Say a few words, please. Um, I don't want to keep you too long, um, but I'm loving this uh, interview, so thank you so much. Um, say a little bit about grounded proteanism, please. Well, uh, I've been interested always in alternatives to cultist behavior or Trumpist attitudes, uh, and I've evolved what I call proteanism or the protean style, and that's simply named after Proteus, a Greek sea guard who was a notorious shapeshifter. And my point is that part of our wiring allows us to symbolize and change what we encounter. We are symbolizers, and that really means that anything we take in, uh, we have to reconstruct. If I'm talking to you right now, as we are, it isn't just words going back and forth. With everything either of us says, Either of us, the, each of us then uh, takes in the person we know over years, uh, adds that statement that he is making, and reconstructs it. Uh, that's our mode of perception. Yes. And that allows us to be protean or many sided. Since we're constantly recreating what we encounter, uh, we have the capacity for many-sidedness for change. Uh, and there is a whole school of philosophical thought uh, which has to do with symbolization and the two great exponents, Kassir and Langer. Uh, Langer, uh, 
an American-born philosopher and Kassira, uh, a, a, a German uh, ph philosopher, and the symbolization principle. And we find some of that in Freudianism, but not to this extent. Right. It's more than just it's more than just a pen equaling a penis or something on that order. It's rather every single perception having to be recreated if we're to take in anything at all. So that enhances a protean style. And then I raise the question, uh, since you can't just keep changing, you need something solid in your sense of self. Mm -hmm. Indeed, even to uh, be comfortable with changes and changing one's life, one requires a certain degree of stability. And that can be in one's work and one's marriage, uh, in various aspects of one's life. And that combination, uh, which would give one grounded forms of proteanism, is what we need now. And what I think we can try to uh, encourage to come into being. Yeah, wonderful. It's so helpful. So we're going to wrap up soon because I don't want to keep you too long, but I really want to just touch on, and we've done previous interviews, and I have blogs with all of your eight deadly sins, all the eight criteria from thought reform, but I just want to connect the dots to, the, to cell phones and the digital world, milieu control, and dispensing of existence. I'll just name a few of your other deadly sins. Uh, mystical manipulation, creating things that seem to be spontaneous, but they're engineered, which is happening in the disinformation sphere online all the time. Loaded language, like the media is the enemy of the people, for example, or fake news or, uh, you know, uh, um, yeah, the, the election was uh, the, uh, stolen, etc. Um, sacred science, cult of confession. Um, my understanding in China is that they are literally surveilling people, taking their DNA, actually giving them little rewards if they do something that, that's considered pro-communist party and demerits. And they're also telling children they can only be video gaming three hours a week on the weekends. Well, so, what do you think? You very, I think you very accurately uh, related most of these eight deadly sins mm -hmm. uh, of totalism in general. In other words, I encountered them in studying thought reform, but obviously thought reform is far from the only expression of totalism, and you yourself have made clear how much totalism there has been in the Moonies and in other cults in this country, mm -hmm. and of course in other authoritarian regimes. The social media give extraordinary intensity and further deception, and the power of a group of individuals or even a single individual to send out disinformation in enormous amounts uh, with little uh, required of him or her to do that. So the social media uh, intensify all of these questions 
the social media themselves are confused and all of us are struggling to keep up with them. And one important development has been the restriction of Trump himself from the main social media, uh, because that makes a savior much less effective as a savior. So we should recognize the tremendous problems created by the social media as you've begun to express them, while at the same time realizing that the social media aren't in themselves fully controlled or controllable, and uh, we are not helpless in seeking to emphasize alternatives to um, destructive behavior and ways involving mourning, involving principles of renewal and of improving people's lives, ways that encourage uh, that form of social renewal and do it collectively. Yeah, exactly. And um, ah, there's so many questions I'd like to ask. I'd like to leave on a on a a big big one, uh, but uh, I, I I I'm hoping we'll talk again soon. But I would I would ask you to uh, just um, give a message of hope based on all of your work, knowing survivors who were able to rise up and incorporate their pain and trauma and go on to be whistleblowers and to do the right thing and be heroic resistors against authoritarian control? Well, uh, I, I can't claim any, um, uh, anything like uh, heroic behavior because I haven't suffered these things, but I have in my work tried to emphasize what can be grasped in the way of hope from each of these studies. I mentioned, for instance, the extraordinary role of Hiroshima survivors in influencing the world. Uh, their message about nuclear weapons can't be erased and has had its very positive developments. Uh, I think now the struggles of the present administration often inadequate and at times uh, insufficient, nonetheless are powerful efforts to emphasize the true nature of catastrophe. In confronting the truth of catastrophe and committing ourselves to survival, that is a powerful expression of hope in itself. And there are people of goodwill, uh, widely disseminated, who are doing just that. I would also say that we are not able, uh, like the psychohistorians of Asimov's trilogy, to predict the future. Uh, the future is open. The future is not foredained. So that by seeing the terrible threat now to the democratic future, uh, that is in itself a dimension of hope which we can pursue again in favor of renewal. Yeah, wonderful. Um, 
Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your time and all your wonderful... To know that you're doing another book is very inspiring for me. And thank you so very much. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, it's always a, a wonderful experience to talk with you. Uh, you've, you've, you've really contributed so much to humanity. And I'm hoping that people who are listening to this podcast will look at your website. We'll put a link up to that and start exploring your books, which are amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website, freedomofmind.com. There you will find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend reading my books, Combating Cult Mind Control and Freedom of Mind, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. Thanks for listening.